0: hey party people welcome to the show i am tommy i am the host happy holidays and such it is december year end wind down time for the big 2020 podcast series it's been a pretty great journey a lot of good times on the show this year i'm not going to get stuck in some long intro though i will pause to reflect because that's the spirit of the new year and i have the spirit Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Alright, that's enough of that. Let's head over to the lounge for some inspired conversation. It's the final show of the 2020 series. It's episode 11, The Underton Window. I don't want to be too dramatic here, but it does feel like a different kind of new year, doesn't it? Like the end of a really unique time in history, the curtain drop on the Trump era. What a hoot this has been. Easily the best reality TV show of all time. Sure, some people had complete emotional breakdowns, their entire identity became Trump, and that was a little weird, but it feels like we might finally be getting away from all of that. The election seems to have pacified a lot of the psychos, and maybe they'll stop over-politicizing every aspect of life for a while. I mean, for me, I think that was the most bizarre part of all, of the whole Trump era. For years, I had been quietly wishing that more people would tune into politics. Well, they did, (laughs) and it was a big, dumb disaster. Careful what you wish for, homie. The uh, discourse just went straight to hell. Instead of being intellectually honest, the mainstream dove right off a cliff. It was an endless series of what-the-fuck-are-y'all-doing moments. There were faithless electors and emoluments clause, 25th Amendment, the Logan Act, collusion, and on and on and on. It's like, oh, what the fuck were y'all doing? At times, I was literally shocked, like, How are so many people so mindless that they're just going along with this nonsense? I feel shocked! Sure do love pumpkins, Cotton. Anyway, I recently read an essay that goodfellow Chris Liss linked to on his Twitter. Uh, It's an essay that was written by Paul Graham. He's one of the dudes from Y Combinator. Uh, You can find it at paulgram.com. The title is How to Think for Yourself. And part of that essay was discussing how independent-minded people are often unaware of just how different their ideas are from the majority of the world. Because the majority of the world are conformists, and the independent-minded person doesn't realize how rare they are until they start sharing their thoughts publicly. It's me! man. I really was shocked on several occasions. I had no idea a little interest most people have in intellectual honesty it was way way more common to just go along with whatever narrative is fashionable and the aftermath of the trump election was a pretty good slap in the face on that it became very high fashion to say completely crazy totally dishonest things about the don and his campaign it was so widespread and so over-the-top phony I changed the format of this podcast, my show, I changed it just to document what was going on, to make some kind of time capsule, a way to show that, hey, not everyone put on a dunce cap and jumped off the cliff. But back to Paul Graham essay, How to Think for Yourself, it went on to describe how independent thought requires being attentive to accuracy and detail, whereas the conventional masses don't really care about any of that. They care about what's popular they'll accept pretty much anything as long as it's fashionable at the moment i think that's a helpful explanation for a lot of those what the fuck moments instead of being like really people aren't going to scrutinize the allegations now i have i think a more complete understanding of like oh i see for a lot of people their version of scrutiny is just repeating whatever the media narrative happens to be And it's a pretty amazing phenomenon when people outsource their curiosity to the media and then return feeling well-informed by what a corporation told them. I do want to talk about that. The bullet point I have on the index card for this show is political literacy, what informs our opinion. But I want to keep the conversation clean. I don't need anyone getting triggered, so let's leave the orange man out of this entirely. A segment that has nothing to do with presidential politics. Let's talk sports. Let's discuss political literacy and what informs our opinions in the context of sports, more specifically the context of sports stadiums and arenas. Essentially, every major metro area in the country has made huge public expenditure to fund the construction of pro sports facilities. How literate are we about that public policy? What informed our opinion about it? I mean, dozens and dozens of sports facilities have been built with taxpayer money over the last few decades. Literally billions of dollars of public money invested in these stadiums and arenas. How much do we really know about that? Well, if you dig into the research on the subject, you quickly find that there's universal consensus in published studies. Sports facilities are among the worst investments a public entity can make. Hmm. Hmm. The facilities do not actually generate any noticeable economic growth for the community. The teams cannibalize essentially all of the revenues, while the public partner gets stuck paying all the costs. It's rare to see this kind of unanimous agreement in academic research, but from Stanford University economics professor Roger Knoll to Harvard Urban Planning's Dr. Judith Grant Long, all the studies arrive at the exact same conclusion. Sports facilities are terrible public investments. And that's not meant to name drop Stanford or Harvard as some appeal to authority. It's not. It's meant to highlight that, hey, there is an alignment across multiple disciplines, and it doesn't matter if it's an urban planner, an economist, or a controller. They're all seeing the same thing, and there's decades of data to pull from at this point essentially every city spent a bundle building these sports facilities the actual receipts are available you can measure the roi and the assertion that events produce more spending and that new tax revenues are going to more than offset the expense of building the facility and that's not true that fell apart in every single case the money goes out But it doesn't result in any noticeable increase in revenues. It's just a giant debt on the public ledger with essentially nothing in return. University of Chicago economist Alan Sanderson concluded that there would be more economic impact if a government just threw money out of a helicopter. So, does the general public share that same consensus view as the research community? Well, no. Not really there's a clear shortage of political literacy on the topic because the public continues to make huge expenditures of taxpayer money to fund construction of sports facilities. People still show up to support it. So how could that be? Where's the disconnect here? Well, as that Paul Graham essay was explaining... Independent thought requires being very attentive to accuracy and detail, whereas conventional wisdom is uncritical and usually content to simply repeat whatever's popular. The example we're using is a sports facility. Check out how the information stream gets polluted. The local sportsball team wants the public to fund a big, shiny new stadium for them to play in. Team thinks that's a great use of public money, and why wouldn't they? John Q. Public pays to build the stadium, then Mr. Billionaire Sports Owner Man waltzes in and keeps all the money that the stadium makes. That's a super deal for the owner, if they can get it. So the team starts pumping out bogus narratives. They typically hire consultants, and the consultants will create totally unrealistic economic impact reports that forecast huge returns for the public on their investment, These con men and their junk forecasts suddenly pop up in the info stream. Snake oil salesmen, if you will, but in the form of billionaire sports owners. And again, there's decades of data available at this point. Tons of scholarly research, and it all shows the exact same thing. A sports stadium is a terrible public investment. And independent-minded will be attentive to accuracy and detail. They'll naturally seek that information out. But the majority of the world aren't independent-minded, and they don't have that approach. They're going to go with what's popular. So it turns into a giant free-for-all to shape those opinions. Luckily, here in the U.S. and A., we have a free press, the Fourth Estate, and it serves as a vital check and balance against these types of shenanigans. When the rich and powerful try to play games with the public's purse, journalism is our defense. yeah right man the media is fully in on the con those stanford and harvard research reports about the true economics of sports facilities you can forget seeing any of that the media constantly promotes the bogus economic reports created by the team they take the junk forecasts and run them as headlines it's truly awesome to watch and it happens over and over again. So it's not a coincidence. I guess the money from the sports section and access to the team owner is way more important than properly informing the public about how their money is being wasted on this shit. Even better, local media will regularly serve as a straight-up hatchet man for the team. They'll openly ridicule dissent. They ask fluff questions at the team's press conferences. They point to the team's rosy forecasts, and then they tell anyone who objects that, you you don't understand math. Uh, The media can be really openly hostile to anyone that doesn't conform to their narrative. Also, of course, the team has a PR department, and the PR department has friends in the media business, or payola, or both. One hand washes the other. Sports Inc., Media Inc., Next thing you know, there's a vignette on some wackadoodle protester. Dude is on the news. He doesn't want the stadium because it'll disrupt the habitat of the ground squirrel, man. And that's how the opposition gets framed. If you're not all in for spending tax money to build the sports ball team a new stadium, you're a kook. You're a ground squirrel habitat guy. If you look hard enough, you might find the professor discussing legitimate research on a Sunday morning public access show or an op-ed about how badly the other stadium projects have worked out will be buried somewhere in section Z. But that's about it. Legitimate research has to battle a seemingly never-ending series of con men and phony narratives to get to the audience. And the media is one of the biggest con men of them all but since a whole bunch of people keep allowing media corporations to shape their opinions the powerful will keep pulling the strings to make sure that works to their advantage of course there is one more prong involved here it's not just the greedy team owner and their dishonest media allies pushing the stadium plan the politicians are all in on this too can't really start spending the public cheese without them can you There's usually one or two honest politicians who will cite legitimate research and oppose the project, but they get labeled as obstructionists, and then they get crushed under an avalanche of pom-poms as the majority of the politicians cheer for the team. During public hearings, you usually see the team owner get reserved seating at the front of the chamber. They're Consultants are welcomed onto the meeting agenda to present their bogus forecasts. Any subject matter expert or residents that might oppose the public expense based on the legitimate research, well, they can fill out a card and get two minutes during public comment. I guess it's easy to understand why elected officials do it. In politics, it's a hell of a lot better to have a couple of rich friends than a whole bunch of poor ones. Besides, most of the poors are conventional-minded rubes who fall for the con every time, so fuck them, they're illiterate. They're going to go along with whatever they're told. Snap call for most politicians, right? Jump in and get your beak wet. And that's the blueprint. Perfect alignment of greed, corruption, disinformation. If the so-called Overton window is the range of policies acceptable to the majority of the population at any given time, When that range of acceptable policies is hijacked by greedy corporations and corrupt politicians with their dishonest narratives being pushed relentlessly by a fraudulent media, you get the Underton window. And the Underton is how terrible public policy sails through the approval process over and over again. Folks will literally show up and cheer corrupt politicians as they funnel millions of dollars in public money to the NFL. And that Underton Window blueprint can be repeated in almost any context. Just make up whatever narrative you need to sell your scam, get the media to echo it until conformists perceive it as popular and they go along with it, then you're home free. Nothing is out of scope. No lie is too big. Uh, So it went. In 2018, despite the mountain of legitimate research that proves that building a stadium is terrible public policy, Clark County, Nevada approved $645 million in funding to help finance the cost of a stadium for the Raiders. The media did live remotes from the fan tailgate and the parking lot outside the vote. They were grilling brats while politicians transferred hundreds of millions of dollars to Mark Davis. Pure political illiteracy, planted by a greedy NFL owner, watered and grown by their media allies then approved by a bunch of corrupt politicians. Happens every day, but it's hard to avoid terrible results when really powerful factions can team up to manipulate people, and unfortunately there seem to be a lot of highly susceptible targets out there waiting to be manipulated. If I can close out the segment by once again referring back to the Paul Graham essay, I'll paraphrase here. One major difficulty is that people are often mistaken about where they fall on the spectrum of independent thinking. The conventional masses don't think of themselves as ill-informed. It genuinely feels to them as if they've studied the issues. Even people who don't look at anything beyond media headlines, they still feel like they've studied and made up their own minds about everything. It's just a coincidence that their beliefs are identical to whatever the popular narrative happens to be. And depending on what's at stake and who wants it, there can be an awful lot of powerful entities polluting the information supply chain. Them snakes are always trying to slither through the underton. Trump error has been the whole underwritten window concept on crack. I'm gonna let you finish. But the completely dishonest narratives about the Trump campaign became some of the most fashionable things of all time. Of all time. It was straight up cartoonish. Media and Democrat politicians promoted completely insane conspiracy theories. Things that should have been laughed out of the public square immediately. But instead, they found a home with an uncritical audience the Trump era moved the Underton window to a completely whacked out place. I don't want to get hung up and spend too much time talking about the rubes who went along with all of it. Obviously, none of the apocalyptic visions of Trump fascism ever happened, but it was really popular to play along with that childish good versus evil fantasy game, Orange Man Bad and whatnot. And I'll get back to the whole team good thing in a minute. But first, I think the far more interesting part is the behavior of Warner Media, NBC Universal, Nash Holdings, Jeff Bezos, The New York Times. Why were the biggest media corporations in the world echo chambering a bunch of cartoonish narratives? I mean, that's the tell, right? It's like publishing the Raiders' phony forecasts on how great a new stadium would be, except now it's fairy tale reports about Russia hacking an election. The media and conglomerates know their reporting is completely disingenuous. They don't care. They have no interest in honesty, none. They want that Underton window, baby. The Trump narratives that the media were pushing were so 180 out from the truth that it went beyond absurd. The lies about Trump somehow managed to become more outrageous than the lies that Don was telling. Here's this obnoxious game show host from Manhattan, and he's full of shit about everything. He surrounds himself with a collection of miscreants and thieves. He's basically every politician ever. But he's brazen. Instead of doing all the typical politics song and dance, Trump stomps in and announces, hey, I'm a giant piece of shit with terrible policy ideas, but for a variety of reasons, his act appealed to enough people that he could win an election. And instead of being intellectually honest about Trump, how he won, why he won, the narratives went right off a cliff. And I'm not talking about Reddit threads or some dude with a Substack. It was the biggest media corporations in the world constantly pushing out stories that were objectively untrue. Major media went out of their way to push the completely fake Russia collusion story. They blatantly doctor quotes like the very fine people thing. It's just an endless flood of disinformation, and it was far more maniacal than anything that Trump was doing. Trump was making bullshit claims about how many people were at his inauguration. The New York Times was trying to disenfranchise voters by overturning a duly held election. There's a couple of orders magnitude difference there. It was such an onslaught of over-the-top, untrue stuff. Sometimes an outlet would go back and post a correction, but not usually. I was pulling together some research before the show, and I see that a couple of CNN reporters did resign after they got caught Completely making up a report about Anthony Scaramucci meeting with Russians. Warner Media was running phony collusion programming around the clock. It was an outlier that someone had to resign over it. There've been essentially no consequences for intentionally misleading the audience. In fact, it was more often rewarded. Folks were getting wealthy, really wealthy, slinging Orange Man bad porn. And independent-minded people are like, "Yo, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining." but again, there's not a whole lot of independent thought out there. It was super high fashion to repeat fantastical conspiracies, and the media packed the market full of fantastical conspiracies to repeat. The Trump era is a pretty harsh reality to face. Most people proved themselves to be a big herd of dummies. They outsourced all of their curiosity to the media and then smugly dismissed anything that ran counter to what NBC Universal was telling them, and that allowed the Underton window to go to such an insane place. The level of political illiteracy is astounding, and there's really no difference between dude grilling brats at the give-a-billion-dollars-to-the-NFL tailgate and the dude who's flooding social media with a bunch of Trump-is-Putin's-puppet stuff. They're both stuffed full of disinformation, they both think their team can do no wrong, and no amount of evidence can ever move them off the spot. Folks who study human behavior would probably call it a form of epistemic closure. Without going too deep here, epistemology is the study of what distinguishes justified belief from baseless opinion. And within that science, there's the concept of entailment. And entailment basically says that if A entails B, then B confirms A. And you can go way down the rabbit hole on all of this philosophical stuff. And obviously, I encourage that. In fact, it might be more worthwhile than getting wrapped up in a TV series like Game of Thrones. Jesus fucking Christ. How awful was that ending? Yes, I'm a little behind the curve on this, but I did start watching Game of Thrones here recently. I don't care if this is like five years old now. It's new to me. How the hell do the writers decide that the Dragon Queen will burn burninate a bunch of peasants instead of going directly to the castle to blowtorch the evil incest queen? I mean, come on. What a goofy way to end a series. They spent seven seasons developing these characters, and two of the characters who didn't turn out to be completely annoying, the Dragon Queen and the Bitch Queen, they never get the final boss showdown. I mean, that's terrible. That's terrible. It's unforgivable. Mother of Dragons, Mother of Kids with Her Brother, and the Dwarf. Those are the kick-ass characters. I think everything else turned out to be kind of dumb. The fat boy Tarly and his mongrel wife. Ugh, what a waste of time. I was openly rooting for the Night King because he doesn't talk, he gives everyone a second chance to make a difference, and he has those very handsome blue eyes. But for whatever reason, the writers decided the show should be about Jon Snow and the stupid Starks. Well... Here's the new news. The Starks suck, and Joe Snow is lame. They should have left him dead. It would have been a way better ending if the mother of dragons scorched that incest queen and then she got down with the dwarf brother. Anyway, the point is, it might have been better to spend that time learning more about epistemology. For the show today, I just want to highlight uh, how the pieces fit together. I've been using the term rubes because it fits, but there is a science behind it all. There's method to making useful idiots. And dude who thinks the Raiders stadium is going to bring in millions of new tax dollars, and dude who thinks Trump is Putin's puppet, they're not just pulling that stuff out of their ass. They're being fed that disinformation, deliberately. The bogus Raiders forecast and the fairy tale collusion reports, those things have a purpose. They provide a justification. Putin puppet Raiders brought to dude, he doesn't think of himself as a rube. He thinks he's the most well-informed person on the planet. The media corporations become an artificial authority. It's on the news, so it must be legit. And once the justification is in place, there can be epistemic closure. The mind can shut off. Hey, the work's done. Putin puppet raider's brought dude, he reviewed the topic. The justification for his beliefs was published in the paper. It was on the news. The subject is now closed. Trump-Russia possible collusion? That's no longer a belief dude knows that that happened. And that is sometimes referred to as doxastic justification, meaning there is good reason to believe the information is true. And the media corporations exploit human nature and the need for a good reason justification. Let's say that you don't like Trump. That's very reasonable. He's not a very likable person. He wins the election fair and square, but you don't like that result. So you want to find some reason to claim that he didn't really win. So you start to suggest that Trump colluded with Russia to steal the election. And that's not reasonable. That's a really goofy thought. However, if a faux authority like the New York Times publishes that same goofy thought, all of a sudden you now have good reason to believe that it's true. In fact, you can even go as far as closure on the entire subject. It's on the news every day, so I know that Trump did, in fact, collude with Russia. Um, should probably pause to recognize whether it's Raider Stadium or a collusion fairy tale, there's almost always some kernel of truth to build from in order to get the phony Underton window to scale. A new football stadium does generate economic activity, but the nuances of substitution effect, leakage, that means that the activity does not actually net significant increase that the team was promoting and the media was reporting similarly team trump are a bunch of miscreants and thieves nobody has to imagine felonious conduct by the people in trump world it's there but it was never colluding with russia to hack an election someone like paul manaford he's a tax cheat he's a fraud lobbyist yes he's a felon but he's not hacking elections i mean geez here's an analogy The Trump narratives were like reporting that Michael Jordan is the best baseball player in the world. Everybody knows that Jordan is a basketball legend, best of all time, so it makes sense that he would be athletic enough to be a great baseball player too, right? Then let's also say you have an emotional interest in that. You're a huge Jordan fan. You want him to be great at baseball. If the media starts publishing stories about how great Jordan was at baseball, you might find yourself having good reason to believe that it's true. If there's round-the-clock sensationalized coverage of how amazing Jordan is at baseball, you could even feel justified in having closure on the subject. It can easily become your truth. Even though you've never seen Jordan play baseball, you can still achieve epistemic closure based on the bias of wanting it to be true, and then uncritically accepting media reports that tell you it's true. And if some other channel started to show video of Jordan striking out a bunch, instead of treating that as evidence and maybe reassessing your beliefs, you would consider the other channel to be your enemy. You would reject the evidence as coming from heretics and deniers, people that are too stupid to acknowledge what you already know is true obviously that's a really messed up place for the bulk of society to be. But here we are. I saw a really cool thread on Twitter about it the other day. Not from anyone famous. It was posted by a lady that lives in San Francisco. I don't know her. Her handle is Burger Bell, B-E-R-G-E-R, Bell, if you want to check it out. It was kind of a long thread, so please allow me to summarize. She was saying that at this stage in our advancement, we prefer to imagine that we're immune to in-group, out-group dynamics. But the unwillingness of the left, of which I consider myself a member, to consider facts which challenge our external social allegiances is deeply concerning. Doubling down on failed recommendations which cause enormous, grotesque collateral harms is something that I expect from politicians, It was not something I expected to see at this scale from the academy. Revered researchers, experts, practitioners, and not from my own team, to put it crudely. Well, I was naive. Tribal identities, it turns out, run chillingly deep. They supersede our disciplines. And today, sensationalism is delivered 24-7 onto our personal glowing rectangles. Media sensationalism feeds public opinion. How did we end up here? Sometimes I feel like we entered an alternate universe. We are entering a new era of repressive politics, this time championed by those who formerly supported freedom of expression. A Newton's cradle of poverty, death, and despair cheered on as social justice, and we just kind of fell into it like Alice down the rabbit hole. I'm not sure how we can roll this back. Not sure we have the collective introspection to challenge the in-group dynamic to admit that we behave as nodes in a social phenomenon. And that terrifies me. Well, I'm more amused by it than terrified. I think it's great podcast content. I really enjoy thinking about the philosophy of it all. So let me close this segment out with some historical patterns that we might see in epistemic closure in politics. I'm going to use the GOP as the example. They went through a great closure, in the 90s, the Republicans are about 20 years ahead of where the Democrat Party is now. Back then, traditional Reaganite right-wing conservatism was primarily concerned with having a strong military to fight off the ever-growing threat of communism, the Cold War, the US versus the USSR. But as an ideology, it became irrelevant. The 80s ended, there was no Russia nuclear threat, And at the same time, we were becoming a more secular society. There was very little appetite for Christian conservative values. Right-wing partisans were just tired and redundant. People weren't afraid of Russia turning the world into communists. People didn't want kids praying to Jesus before math class could start. But instead of evolving with the times, the conservatives went into closure. In the mid-90s, Fox News launched, probably in recognition of that market segment, The right needed new enemies to fight against, and the Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity types moved in to serve that need. They created conspiracies about shadow governments and all that hokey shit. All the stuff that eventually became QAnon and Pizzagate. That's kind of a completely separate Underton window over in Foxworld that feeds all of that nonsense. But make no mistake, the left is the exact same, and they get all indignant about it, they have the identical dysfunction. Instead of evolving and learning from the Trump era, the left has gone further into closure. And that means more fanatical obsessions, more conspiracy theories. You know, Hunter Biden laptop is a Russian disinformation. censor anyone who reports critically on the Democrats. Um, The social justice warriors would probably be wise to acknowledge how their act has become just as tired and redundant as all the kill for mommy stuff was at the end of the 80s, their obsessions no longer register beyond their group. And because of their wacky oppression Olympics and how they kind of excommunicate anyone who even slightly deviates from whatever their ideology happens to be today, the group is dwindling as it eats itself. They, let's be real here. There is no mandate the 2020 election results are in and it sure as hell was not a blue wave for all of the preening about saving democracy the democratic party did not post a set of convincing victories but it appears they're gonna double down anyway i think they're too far into epistemic closure to pull out now the left are gonna go to the grave clutching all of their phony team good narratives the exact same way the reaganites did before them It has been really remarkable to watch. Uh, The 2020 election did happen. I guess I should get in a quick segment on all that. Don't worry. I'm not going to crash the show into a ditch by getting into all the crazy conspiracy theories. First off, I don't care. I meant it when I said that Trump and Biden are indistinguishably awful. I sincerely do not care who wins. I suppose that helps me remain objective. It's not a blood sport to me. I don't have any win-by-whatever-means-necessary thing going on. I do think that 150 million people beclown themselves by voting for one of these two stiffs, but I'm not really hung up on that either. Also, I can't be bothered by anyone who objects to analyzing the anomalies of the 2020 election. I see all the flags on the tweets and all the censorship that's going on, and I know some people get all indignant if you say anything about the election and they start to call you Trumpkin or whatever. I'm not concerned with any of it. The 2020 election had some serious irregularities, and there's nothing wrong with talking about them. Most notably was the framework that was put in place by many of the states. Not sure how widely studied this stuff is. In election law, there's something called the Purcell Principle. Not Parcells, like the old NFL coach, Purcell, as in Purcell vs. Gonzalez. It's a case that went to the Supreme Court back in 2006. And the Purcell Principle states that election rules should not be changed just prior to an election because doing so confuses voters and it creates problems for the officials that administrate the election. The principle takes its name from that 2006 Supreme Court case where the justices reversed a decision about an Arizona voter ID law that was implemented during that year's midterm elections. In 2020, multiple states violated the Purcell principle, and they made radical changes, essentially destabilizing the electoral process. And That should not be a controversial statement. The Purcell principle is real. States did make sweeping changes to the voting process on the eve of the election. State officials determined that COVID-19 was so dangerous that they had to send live ballots to everyone on the voter rolls. And that is a curious decision for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, At the exact same time that Democrat state officials were claiming we had to move to universal mail-in voting because COVID-19 is just that dangerous, the DNC was also suing the Green Party to keep them off the ballot in several states. And the reason for that lawsuit was that the Green Party did not go door-to-door to acquire the amount of signatures they needed to qualify for the ballot. How awesome is that? Out of one side of their mouth, the Democrat officials are ordering that mail-in ballots be sent to everyone on the voter roll because COVID is so dangerous. And out of the other side of their mouth, the DNC is suing to keep the Green Party off the ballot, claiming that COVID is no excuse for not going door-to-door to get hard signatures. The DNC is suing the Greens to keep them off the ballot. There's no higher form of suppression than that. Anyway... The other curious part was firing out live ballots to everyone on the voter rolls instead of using the standard absentee process of having a voter request a mail-in ballot. Obviously, there's a huge distinction between those two things. It would be one thing to open the standard absentee process to everyone in the state. If you want an absentee ballot because of COVID, here, just ask for one according to all the usual absentee rules but that's not what happened. What happened instead is live ballots went out to everyone on the voter rolls, and the voter rolls are a disaster in most states. Again, that's not a controversial statement. The rolls are not properly maintained. They're full of dead people, people who move but never sent a change of address, etc., etc. The move to universal mail-in ballots using the severely flawed voter rolls was an intentional act by the Democrats to make the election less secure. Just call it what it is. The DNC went to great lengths to destabilize the election. They brought in Mark Elias, the lawfare general. He was the lead attorney in numerous cases. For example, the DNC sued the state of Pennsylvania to exploit a signature loophole in the state law. If you go and read the case, you'll find that Pennsylvania law states that a mail-in ballot has to be signed. However, the law does not specifically state that the election board that's counting the votes should verify the signature. The DNC literally sued to prevent Pennsylvania from doing any type of signature matching because the statute did not specifically state that the election board should verify the signature. It's another one of those through-the-looking-glass moments of the Trump era. The Democrats were on an all-out blitz throughout the summer to make the election less secure. The Democrat-controlled states flooded the zone with live ballots, they sued to prevent signature verifications, and then they let nature take its course. And the DNC had damn good reason to destabilize the election. They knew that Trump was a force, they knew they couldn't beat him unless they changed the rules, and they were right. (laughs) The Don posted a historic and undisputed turnout he got unheard of levels of support from minority voters. It's essentially impossible to prove fraud under these conditions. It's sort of some hidden home video. It's not really possible to prove ballot harvesting. In fact, I don't even think referring to it as fraud makes sense. I think the proper term is electioneering. I mean, yeah, I've seen some of the conspiracy theories about Dominion software, but there's no evidence of any type of fraud. There's tons of evidence of electioneering, though the dnc used lawfare to set the playing field they violated the purcell principle up and down they got judges to issue rulings preventing things as basic as signature matching i mean do i have to explain why the dnc sent their number one attorney to pennsylvania to make sure that they could mail ballots to everyone on the rolls and then no one was allowed to do a signature verification i mean it's genius really i respect the player they totally boxed trump in I mean, what's he going to present to a court? All he has are statistical models that show how irregular the election was. Wait, pause. Uh, obviously, idiot Sidney Powell filed those kraken lawsuits. Oh my God, she's such an embarrassment to the legal profession. Anyone who's heard the Mike Flynn podcast, you already know where I'm at on Miss Powell and her abilities. So, unpause. The stat models from the 2020 election are pretty interesting. For example in a typical election, mail-in ballots are rejected at a rate of about 5%. However, in 2020, an election that had more mail-in ballots than ever seen before, the rejection rate dropped to less than 1%. I mean, am I really supposed to believe that people started making fewer mistakes filling out the ballot when over half the population was voting by mail? But it doesn't matter what my belief on that might be, because my belief is not evidence. We don't use a preponderance standard to overturn an election. I mean, is it more likely than not that the Biden win was the result of unethical electioneering? Yes, it is. But too bad, so sad, he wins anyway. Uh, This thing's over, and Joe Biden is going to be inaugurated, and that's the correct result. That's the only result it can be, so enough of the nonsense. And those are my thoughts on the election. Well, I guess with one final thing, The Biden win does create a really amazing phenomenon, and we're going to see it play out on January 6th, 2021. Can I call it the big pivot? We're going to see the complete reversal. Partisans just completely contradicting their previous statements without a care in the world. Uh, Clown world is the absolute best.